This is the Bluegrass Beat Podcast. News, training, and first-hand accounts from Kentucky's leading law enforcement professionals and instructors. And here's your host, Quitley Kingsmith. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Bluegrass Beat. I'm Cridley Kingsmith. Today, we continue celebrating the Kentucky Department of Criminal Justice Training's 50th anniversary by looking back at how far we've come as an agency. Joining me to reflect on how DOCJT has continued to adapt to meet Kentucky's law enforcement needs are two individuals with their own long-standing histories with the department. First, is someone who has spent the past 25 years at DOCJT. Since coming to the agency, he has served as an instructor for various sections, was supervisor of the Investigations and the Physical Training and Defensive Tactics section. He has served in a variety of leadership roles, including as Compliance Investigator, Staff Assistant, Assistant Training Director, and more. He has been an adjunct professor at Eastern Kentucky University since 2004. Everyone, welcome to the show, DOCJT, Director of Training Operations, Frank Kabala. Thanks for being here this morning, Frank. Thank you for having me. All right. In the previous episode, I was able to talk with Staff Assistant Patrick Miller about DOCJT's vast history. I mean, dating back to even before we were a department. So as we're currently celebrating our 50th anniversary, I want to talk to you as our training director about the changes we have made in training over the years. We know that policing has changed. Communities have changed. What have we done to keep up with those changes? Can you give me some, maybe some examples? Because I know, like I said, this last episode, we talked about in-service only having three courses in the beginning. Basic training was only three weeks. That That's a lot of change in the past 50 years. Yes, it is. You know, beginning with basic training, starting with uh, just three weeks. You know, Kentucky had some agencies that did mandate some type of training, but the whole state as a whole did not have to mandate it. This organization was brought about to bring professionalism to training via Eastern Kentucky University and some federal grants back in the late 60s and early 70s. So starting with three weeks was a big win back in the 60s and 70s as policing was having trouble and difficulty coming out of uh, Vietnam era and civil rights um, era policing. While we look at it, you know, sitting here at 20 weeks today, that was a big deal. Absolutely, it was, and and still continues to be a big deal today, as we see nationally the amount of media attention that policing gets, and a lot of that stems directly back to what we do here in training environment. Uh, it's critical that the young police recruits get off on the right foot and are taught the things that they need to be taught in basic training to be effective in their jobs, um, effective in their communities, uh, understand this, the vast different types of people. Uh, diversity is more in the United States than it's been in the last 50 years. We've become a diverse nation, uh, a, a multinational nation, and uh, we need to continue to reflect that in our training. Absolutely. Going back to in-service, I know I talked with you about us only starting with recourses. Can you talk about what they did back then, but also what we do now and how that's shifted? Oh, yes. Uh, tremendous change in service, even in my 25 years here. Uh, in 1998, when I first started here at the Department of Criminal Justice Training, they taught three classes in service. They still had a what they called command decisions, which is today is pecked of today, but for the line level officers, they only had three choices. Current class that was taught, the year before there was a class taught, and the year before that, and they just kept dropping them off and designing something new. 
And today we have a uh, patrol section, we have an investigation section, and there's more than more than about 60 different offerings in in service that, that these police officers can take. Of course, uh, you know, we develop that part. And, of course, the Kentucky Law Enforcement Council developed the career development program, um, which went right along with what we were offering. So if, if a chief has a young officer that they're trying to develop into an investigator, they can take that whole line and go. If it's patrol, they can take that line and, and develop their careers leadership same way. Uh, it sounds like we went from important knowledge in the beginning, but it was broad overview to now the opportunity to specialize in specific skills. Absolutely. The crime scene technicians course is now five weeks and then five weeks for section one, section two of that. That course is highly specialized and really helps the officers here in state. Very important in court to understand all your crime scene processing. Can you tell me a little bit about how you've seen those specializations grow? I know you specifically were involved in some of the growth that happened with our physical training and defensive tactics section. Yes, um, in particular with the big local fitness and defensive tactics, when I first got here under the old 10-week program in June of 1998, it wasn't mandatory to pass anything. Um, in fact, you didn't really even have to participate in physical fitness. With the ab- advent of the POPs legislation, police officers' professional standards, along with that came an entrance physical fitness tests and an exit physical fitness test. So that's changed dramatically on what we see in a recruit today. Our staff in the gym does a fantastic job of then taking what that recruit is when they get here and making them even better before they walk out the door. They were really setting them off to be physically fit. Um, and that, that relates today into what we've learned in this idea of resiliency, which we've offered here with total mental health, physical health, financial health, those types of things to make the total police officer. Leadership in particular is another area that I have witnessed. Um, In fact, I just attended an Academy of Police Supervision graduation this past Friday, and the number one class started in 2001. And I've been here to be able to see the fruits of its development uh, between Academy of Police Supervision, the Criminal Justice Executive Development Program, and the other courses that we offer, uh, I think we've set the leadership in Kentucky up. Uh, again, being here for 25 years, a lot of my peers as I grew up are chiefs and our sheriffs across the state, and it's been great to see them grow. And I think we do very well in policing in Kentucky. And a lot of it is because of that leadership program and the outstanding leaders we have here in policing in Kentucky. Now, to take you back to resiliency uh, really quickly, can you tell me about the shift that we've had in training at looking at the complete officer, uh, making sure that they're both physically healthy, but also mentally healthy to take on the, the task that we, we place on them to protect our communities? Absolutely. Um, and I, I have seen this throughout my career before I knew what it really was. I'm a former crimes against children detective, and so it takes its toll on you. And we finally, law enforcement finally realized that these compounding critical incidents, uh, whether you're involved in a shooting, a bad accident, seeing a child or a death of a human, these things keep compounding and compounding and compounding and building on you till you face your own issues, whether it be at home through domestic violence, through alcohol use or drug use, or just not understanding how your body is changing because of this extreme level of stress. Back in the 80s, the FBI developed a post-critical incident seminar. It was taken by a South Carolinian and 
Uh, we've taken that and really run here in the state with that. So what does it say about DOCJT that we have shifted to continue to meet our clients' needs, even in more ways than just training? I'm very proud to work here, very proud of what we've accomplished and very proud of where we are and where we'll continue to go. It isn't me. I have 115 people that work for me in the trade operations divisions and these these ladies and gentlemen that work here just will do everything they can to find the most pertinent, up-to-date issues that we need to be training to make sure that our police officers are totally healthy. And if they are totally healthy, they will deliver a much better product to the citizens of the Commonwealth. So everything we do here is for the safety and the well-being of police officers, but it also extends to the citizens of the Commonwealth. I can't think of a a more satisfying feeling of working in a place like this. Going back to in-service, do you remember what order things got added in? I I originally went to in-service training as a supervisor of investigations in uh, uh, March of 2004, and they were doing, they had some better courses. If I did anything right, I just hired the right people to, for me in investigations and got out of their way. People like John Schwartz and Joe Wallace and George Barrett over in Louisville, Eddie Ferry and Jeff Hancock and Larry Sennett, we all worked very closely together to continue to develop and develop. And their skill sets were off the chart. John Schwartz and George Barrett are homicide courses and interview interrogation courses. And Joe Wallace and Larry Sennett had the background of for crime scene investigations. Uh, Eddie Ferry, Jeff Hancock had backgrounds in child abuse and adult abuse, and all those topics just kept expanding and getting better and better. better. It seems like that bringing in the right people helped piece the puzzle together. Absolutely. That's why I was saying today that, uh, you know, oddly, when I started here in in 1998, there were only 66 people that worked at the agency. Why things have changed. Yes, they have. And that's just it. I'm lucky to be involved in division has 115 today and we're one over 180, give or take, um, here at the agency now. And and it is fantastic the way the training operations division and the administrative division work together to get things done is is just outstanding. We got great people here. You mentioned 1998, uh, which was the year that you got here, but that was also a big year of expansion for DOCJT. 98 and through the year 2001 until they were completed, yes, the firearms building, the Sayer building, the Schwindemann building, and the dorm rooms all began construction. Uh, uh, myself and, and Mr. Miller were involved in some of that planning early on and Oddly, it's funny, you always hear back then we kept saying, design for the future, design for the future. You're going to run out of room if you don't. Well, here I am 25 years later. We're and still. We're still. <laughs> and, we, we're, bigger. and we're out of room, right? <laughs> so, and, you know, it really is true that when you plan, plan for the extended future. What was it like to see it continue to mature and grow and add, um, you know, more facilities for our clients? If you walk around the building today and you go to each section, what I think you see is an extreme pride in what they do. I know when we give tours, I just, I love to go on the tours and listen to the firearms people speak about what they do in firearms and the tactics people all, and, you know, they built that room over there and uh, unbelievable, the leadership from all of them. They're very, very dedicated to what they do. And it comes through on a daily basis to, to these recruits, uh, you know, from the, the gym, to now we have a structural design and what they're doing to our in-service courses, our leadership, the resiliency section. I can't say enough about what they do and how they've impacted um, the state. It's off the charts. 
from what I understand, you know, you were here when POPs came about, the police officer's professional standards. Can you tell me about the change going from pre-POPs to post-POPs and, and kind of how that became worked into our law enforcement culture? The difference between the recruit before and the recruit after is night and day. Um, not to say there weren't great police officers before that there were, but I think that you got into the 18 different things that they had to pass. I was here. I actually helped do some of the case studies for the it what ends up being the fitness test because it was scenario-driven as well. And what we see today is a much better recruit, and hopefully we'll have that long-lasting resiliency to make it through um, because you are doing the suitability screens, you are checking those backgrounds, you are making sure that they are, you know, a good, sound person to be able to complete a career in this field. It's a much tougher business than when I got into it 37 years ago. Is there something that specifically was striking to you as a poignant moment where things changed for law enforcement for the better, specifically in regards to training? I, I specifically have to take that to resiliency. When you are losing more police officers to suicide than you are to assault on the street, something has to be done. And uh, and again, the, where we are with that and where we will continue to grow and expand with that, the magnitude of what we're doing, again, because that healthy police officer is better with their family, which in turn makes them better at work, which in turn makes them serve better. I think all those things just have compounded. That That is, uh, everything else that I've mentioned is fantastic, but I really feel that that, that is off the, um, off the chart is, is the number one thing that I would put in place that's really going to impact and change law enforcement for the better. We, are, we have and we are continuing to embed that resiliency idea into all other trainings, into basic training and service classes so that people understand um, what's happening to them and when to seek that help. Is there anything that you would like to touch on as far as the way of, that we've changed? Even though we continue to grow as an agency, we also continue to grow as a family here at the agency. And my kids aren't kids anymore. You know, I have people that are, I've worked here so long. They've watched uh, my kids grow up. They've watched me age, and I've watched their kids grow up. The forming of the long-lasting relationships here, is, despite everything I said about law enforcement, and I certainly love my career here, and I've always loved the idea of the family here at the Department of Criminal Justice Training as it continues to work in that area. Everybody cares about everybody, and, and we just had some bad storms last night, and I know people are trying to rally to help others employees here that have had some difficulty at the house and we will continue to do that whether they're sick or whether their kids are sick or family are sick and, and everybody is always there for everybody and that is probably the most rewarding thing that I think I can have a member of a big family. So thank you for joining us on this little trip down memory lane. I know we're going to continue to do this for the next few episodes with some different people but it was really nice to get you on the show Frank and to talk about uh, DOCJT. It's my pleasure. It's uh, always great to talk about what we do. Our next guest has seen DOCJT through several different lenses. She began her career in telecommunications, went through basic training academy in 1999, and served 19 years with the Berea Police Department before joining DOCJT as an instructor and then class coordinator. She was honored with the Kentucky Women's Law Enforcement Network's 2019 Lifetime Achievement Award 
and now making her way full circle, she is DOCJT's Telecommunications Section Supervisor. Welcome, Leanne Boyle. Good afternoon. All right, so as we've been asking previous guests, we want to know about your experience with DOCJT as a way for us to see how the agency has grown and evolved over the years. You came to the Academy in 1999. That was right after the Peace Officer Professional Standards took effect. What was that like? Well, it was kind of intimidating at first, but prior to coming into the Academy uh, in 1999, I was hired as a dispatcher for the Brio Police Department and actually went through a one-week academy at that time here at DOCJT. And I was able to, I guess, get secondhand information from people, as is the process. And also, uh, we had a couple of our officers that went, matter of fact, I think there was one, one officer from our department actually participated in those professional standards to get those set up. And having him come back and relay to me, uh, because I was also going to be in the process of, of testing again for the police officer position. And when he relayed that to me, I had a, at least a little bit of knowledge beforehand, and I began training at that moment. You said you began training. What were things you did to get prepared with this new knowledge? A lot of that began with nutrition and also weight training, running. Uh, sprinting, because at that time when we came through, we had to run the 300 meter, we had to do the mile and a half, uh, we had to do the push-up sit-ups and the bench press, but there was also a vertical jump, and so I think they did away with the vertical jump, uh, but we uh, we had to pass all that, so that was a continuous process. I knew within a year that I was going to reapply if the position opened up, and so during that entire year, that's what I did. I went out daily and practiced at least one, if not all of them, within that week of what I needed to do to complete that standard. And so obviously, you you got through POPs. Yes, I did. <laughs> yes, I did. And it was, uh, you know, it was it was a challenge, but it was a challenge well, well accepted and uh, overcome. We mentioned earlier that you have seen DOCJT from multiple angles. You've been a recruit, You've been an instructor, you've been a class coordinator, and now you know, supervisor. But since beginning your law enforcement career, what are some of the changes that you have noticed in our training? I noticed that, well, when, when I first came through, uh, we were housed at Maddox Hall. All the recruits were from all the classes that were there. They were housed in Maddox Hall as well. Now, the females were all on the first floor, and then the second, third, and fourth of Maddox Hall housed the male recruits. Now, the men and women are housed on the same floor. Of course, they're in separate rooms. But when we were at Maddox Hall, we had a community shower and we had um, community bathrooms. And so... Not quite as comfortable as it is today. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And and so, you know, I've, I've seen those changes, but also... And well, from what I've heard, that that was an improvement from what they had before. Yes. And so, you know, those officers that came before me were like, well, you better be glad that you're not over at the motel. Yes. Uh, I've heard horror, horror yes. stories about the motel. Yes. You know, so now when the recruits come in, they, they're housed on site. Now, during COVID, we had them housed off campus, which I knew that process. And so that enabled me to, you know, instruct the recruits in a, in a manner that which I had been instructed before. You knew where they were coming from. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. But the accountability that the recruits have now of badging in, 
we, we didn't have that accountability. They told us to be where we needed to be at a certain time, and we need to be here at the academy at a certain time. Now, DOCJT has more skill areas provided. When we came through, yes, we had handcuffing, we had pistol, shotgun, we didn't have rifle. So that was something that was incorporated into training was rifle. We didn't have a tactics training. We had DUI and uh, the um, intoxilizer training. And at that time, we had live subjects that, you know, consumed alcohol, and we were able to practice that. So our practicals, we were actually able to drive around a certain area in Richmond. And then we were dispatched to certain locations on campus uh, to uh, do the uh, scenario trainings if we dealt with, like, a, a murder scene or a disorderly subject, a DUI, and then even an AI. So... That has changed a little bit now that they, they're allowed to just stay on campus, but we still dispatch them to those areas in some of our practicals inside. Now, the end of the academy practicals are different now. There's a lot of tactics training. Right. So that, that training in itself is pretty noteworthy in regards to the changes. Oh, yes. yeah. Talking about Red Man, and I know everybody, you know, they remember Red Man. Which for anyone that, that might not know, Red Man is... So what that is, there are certain instructors during PT and DT uh, that would dress in a suit that is foam, and it's covered, it's all red, but it's like foam, so it's like Keeps a protector. safe, yes. Yeah, it's a protector uh, for them, and then they give us a, um, a rubber noodle, basically, yeah. <laughs> like a baton right. to use. During when we came through... We had three different times that we had to, and it was like a two-day, sometimes a two- to three-day course of fighting what we would call Red Man. And you would go in, and you would take one on and then come back out, and it was in an enclosed area where none of the uh, other recruits could see what was going on. And so one in particular that we were all concerned about having to go up against was uh, Frank Cabala. Who who we just uh, spoke with right before you came on here. (laughs) And so there he was. um, He had a 56-inch reach. And, I mean, that's what we were He's a very tall guy. very tall guy. And you couldn't get away from him. They'd go in and have to go against George Coleman, L.J. Weber, Bob Johnson. So that was in my era that that we had to go up against. And so, but the one that we feared the most was uh, Dr. Frank Kabbalah now. (laughs) But yes, but now when they do Red Man here, they, the whole class is kind of gathered around and watching everything. And it's just, you get your one time going in. But I can see that there's benefits to both, you know, and one, you have to truly think on your feet when you've not seen what happens, how we do it today. You're, you're learning by watching it. Absolutely. So. Absolutely. And yes, you know, so, but, you know, other changes that have, that have well is like the technology changes, you know, um, I came through. We didn't have KY ops. We took a dispatch class like to where that we could go in and talk about like a security awareness uh, yes. and things of that nature. Throughout my career, we were, you know, we took on KY ops. We went from uh, doing paper citations and cases to doing the, the digital version. You know, when you talk about the cleft fund, when we came through, it was uh, 2100 and now it's uh, $4,300. You know, so there's that incentive to to further the training and leadership classes. Oh, my gosh, the leadership classes they offer now and the other trainings that they offer now, we didn't have that those opportunities. Yes. And so, you know, I would encourage anybody that is out there, get involved in, in, in the training that goes on at DOCJT. And even if it does not pertain to your expertise, take it. 
because, you know, you never know when you might need to use it. Right. So while still the minority, female officers are increasing within police departments. When you first came through the academy, were there many women or has that been something that you've seen increase over the years? Um, when I came through, I think in combining all four of the classes, there may have been six women. And they're, they're, but at any given time, you could have eight, you know, at this time. I, I see at least two to three women coming through a class. I had six in one of my classes before. Right, I remember. Uh, that was pretty exciting. Was yes. And so, you know, seeing women um, coming up through the ranks and advancing through the ranks and seeing them in supervision even here is is something that that is uh you know it's it's inspirational as well what is something that you try to impart to maybe your female recruits so that they do not get discouraged that they know that they matter in this career field and that it's important for more women to seek this career field out just because there's less females doesn't mean that we're not able to do the job or capable of doing the job Uh, we have the ability and the capability of doing this job like anyone else Unfortunately, we'll be faced with certain obstacles, but in reality, uh, everyone's going to have obstacles to overcome in this in this profession. Some are going to struggle with talking. Some are going to struggle with uh, dealing with domestic violence. Uh, some are going to struggle with uh, seeing death and looking at that. Some are going to struggle, maybe not all aspects of it, but in certain aspects, they're going to struggle with that. But being a female should never stop you from doing this job. To me, it was the most rewarding uh, when investigating cases of domestic violence, sexual abuse, uh, murders. I mean, it was most rewarding in doing all that, not because I was a female, but because I was a police officer doing the job that was asked of me to do. And it doesn't matter really who who you are. It doesn't matter. We all have a an important part in the successful mission of law enforcement. Right. I think it comes down to people need to get out of the idea of thinking that, you know, men can't be kind and women can't be strong. Exactly. That they both can take on those sides of the job and and complete them at, you know, at equal capacity. Yes. 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 And, and, you know, it's, it's one thing to, to do the job, but it's another to do the job with everything that you have and you're doing it legally, ethically, and morally. And I think that's the big, that's where you're going to overcome a lot of it. A lot of it is doing the job that you're required to do and doing it in accordance to the standards that are set. And as police officers, we're set to higher standards. One thing that I want to reiterate to women out there, if you are wanting to become a police officer, go for it. Go for it. Uh, Don't let any person, don't let any obstacle, don't let anything stand in your way to doing a job that you feel like that you need to do and do it to the best of your ability. All right. So you mentioned prior to your police career, you spent a year of dispatch at Berea, and now you're the telecommunications section supervisor here at DOCJT. How has telecommunications training changed? I know that there has been some significant innovation. So when I came through and in even in my dispatching time, we wrote 
everything down. We didn't have, we had one computer in front of us, maybe two if you were lucky, but we had to write everything down. We didn't have the computer assisted dispatch, which is CAD at that time when I came through. So everything was written down on logs. Officers, um, dispatch times, the arrivals, we dispatched for fire and EMS and the police. And so all of that had to be documented. And if it wasn't documented correctly, or if it wasn't documented legibly, you know, because that was the only kind of uh, reports that were available. We went through one week of the academy. Now they're going through four weeks of the academy. We have the computer-assisted dispatch. Uh, now we take calls. I remember coming through. It was so funny that we have, uh, and they're still up there right now, phones on the wall. Oh, wow. And um, so you would pick up that phone, and you would take a call from someone else. And then you would have to dispatch in accordance to your training just by using a, a, a phone and a radio. Now you have two monitors in front of you, and you're actually getting a, a 911 call to you simulated through that dispatch. And then you'll go through several practicals. It's a lot of multitasking. Gotcha. So you're having to document everything, plus reach over and make the phone call or make a call, dispatch your officers. You know, now officers have MDTs in their in their vehicles. You know, we didn't. I didn't have that up until my latter part of my career. So it was like I was, I wasn't a citizen of technology. I was more like an immigrant coming into it. Everything's connected. Yes. Hopefully, you know, help create that that better product of public safety. Yes. But now we are about we're we're starting to implement prepared nine one one, and that I'm excited about here. We're doing uh, de-escalation. We're in the process of creating that lesson plan in regards to how a telecommunicator can listen to the words that are not being said. Does that make sense when I say that? So like if they take a call and they've got someone that the way that they're saying things, the way that the background noises. Right. Uh, so they're having to differentiate. Kind of interpret the situation. Yes. Yes, it's kind of like being an investigator. You're having to take the knowledge that you give and build upon what you're given in order to give your officers the information they need. And, you know, when talking about our telecommunicators, I I explained to them that, listen, you guys are like, and ladies are like parachute packers. You know, when you you go, and, and I don't know if you've ever skydived, no, I think it would be fascinating. I do not know if I'm brave enough, but it, I know you've done it. Yes, it, it, it was awesome. But, you know, when watching and, and getting ready to get on the plane and you watch them pack that parachute, and that parachute has to be packed in a certain order for that person jumping out of the plane to land successfully. And so one of the things I tell them, I said, you all are the parachute packers of our police officers because you have to pack their parachute so that they can have a safe landing when they arrive on scene. And that's how important your job is. Exactly. And, uh, you know, so, you know, you come, they come through here and, and, you know, they're like, you know, we're just a dispatcher. Well, no, you're our lifeline. You know, you're the police officer's lifeline, the fire department, the fireman's lifeline, the, the EMS lifeline, and also your community's lifeline. Because they're not going to call you when they have a, a great day. It's going to be on the worst day of their life that they call you. And so when you get that information, you have to take what you give and then basically regurgitate it back to the officer so that it's it's a it's a two-way street there but when with prepared 911 the way that we're we will be teaching this uh, later on is that we actually the 911 call we can send a text to the person calling 911 
Wow. And they can accept the text. And uh, it's like logging in. They, you get a code, uh-huh. and they touch on that code. And then it comes up in a live feed for our dispatchers. So we're able wow. to have an interaction. We can see what's going on. That is amazing. And, and we can hear what's going on in the background. And so some of that training that we, we will start doing here at DOCJT. So I'm excited. Definitely a, a major innovation yes. to, to be able to bring to um, our clients. Well, thank you for joining me this afternoon to talk about your personal history with DOCJT. You're welcome. And, I, you know, I want to say that I absolutely love where I work at. You know, starting from the beginning of, of becoming a, a dispatcher, and then being a police officer and coming through through the training throughout the years of my because DOCJT, I mean, they have been the um, the backbone of my training, and then coming through and and the belief that I had in the training that DOCJT had, and then coming, I guess, full turn now, and now I'm teaching and I'm coordinating and I'm now a supervisor and passing on that knowledge before. Basically, what we do is we're, I'm training my replacements, and that in itself is very rewarding. They say that's what a good leader does, Leanne. Well, thank you, and thank everyone for listening. More information about today's topic can be found in this episode's show notes. Remember, you can find us on DOCJT's website under the training tab, on Apple Podcasts, and on Spotify. Until next time, I'm Critley King-Smith, and you have been listening to The Bluegrass Beat. We hope you join us again. We strive to make this podcast entertaining and informative. If you would like to reach us with a comment or suggestion, contact us via the link in the show notes. You can subscribe to The Bluegrass Beat wherever you listen to podcasts. This has been a Team Kentucky and Department of Criminal Justice Training production.